Kyiv 2004 a snowy day. With my younger friend, we painted two sheets of orange paper, boldly inscribing TAK, meaning yes, in giant red letters. Our parents and grandparents were heading to Maidan, finally taking us along. Maidan was a spectacle. An immense crowd, songs, dances, countless orange flags and the distinctive smell of smoke. This was the Orange Revolution, an event that I forever associate with my mother. She was very engaged, active and passionate, because she believed that she could change her country and have a better future for me. She invited strangers from Maidan to stay overnight at our home. She brought a lot of food and clothes for people who lived in tents there, because they were from other cities. Many of her evenings and weekends were devoted to Maidan, her form of protest not just against Yanukovych, but in support of democratic values. I was in the fourth grade at school at that time. My classmates and I engaged in big arguments, but not over toys, favorite superheroes and cartoons as normal kids do. We debated who was cooler, Yushchenko or Yanukovych, retranslating our parents' opinions, of course. Our class and school, like the entire country, were divided. East versus West, Yanukovych versus Yushchenko, Russian versus Ukrainian, and the symbolic clash of orange against blue. This polarization was so deep that for many years I thought it was natural and true. It is only after 2014 that I truly knew that this polarization was artificially organized by Russia. Russia spent tons of money on media, ads and politicians to create the idea of a divided Ukraine. So it was easier to invade and occupy Crimea and parts of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. The motto East and West together, originally from the Orange Revolution, gained profound significance for me only after 2014, during my moments of protest. The Orange Revolution in Ukraine took place in late 2004 following rigged presidential elections in favor of Russian puppet Viktor Yanukovych over Viktor Yushchenko. Witness accounts of electoral fraud and corruption sparked widespread protests in Kyiv's central square and across the country, with thousands of Ukrainians rallying around Yushchenko. But to many, the revolution was never really about him. It was about Ukraine's ability to choose freely who leads our country and about our freedom from Russian meddling in Ukraine's future. To this day, I can remember the sea of orange, the color of Yushchenko's electoral campaign that enveloped the central street of my home city for months. Orange symbolized more than just a campaign color. It embodied Ukraine's pursuit of freedom, independence, and the choice of democracy over authoritarianism. At the age of 12, I found myself standing amidst the sea of orange alongside my parents, cousins, uncle and aunt. I remember being told by my parents that we, as citizens of a free country, had a duty to stand up for what was right. This is a special season of Ukrainian Spaces, a podcast elevating diverse Ukrainian voices and explaining Ukraine to the world. For nine-year-old me, the Orange Revolution felt like a winter fairy tale. I mean, suddenly, the entire city of Kiev was doing this magical thing filled with colors, sounds, villains, heroes, and plot twists. In the December of 2004, everybody in Kiev was either supporting people in Maidan or closely following the events. At least that's how it felt. All the kids at the school were 
talking about it and telling real and made-up stories and rumors that they heard from the news or their parents. Teachers were also talking about it during the breaks. It was surreal and very exciting to me as a kid. This surreal and exciting moment in our history, as Stas recounts, resulted in a revote, which Yushchenko won. It marked a significant turning point in Ukrainian politics and strengthened the country's democratic foundations. But it also marked a moment of increased investment by the Russian colonial empire into artificially creating polarization and division in the Ukrainian society to ensure that they could keep controlling us just as they did for centuries before. Money was pumped into reversing the process of democratization and cultural liberation that Ukraine went through since its renewed independence. Russia saw that Ukrainians wanted to choose their own way of living and felt threatened by this to the core. If people in Ukraine could break free from Russia's colonial control, not only would they show others that it's possible, they'd also show people within Russia a different way of living. Democracy threatened the very foundation on which the Russian colonial empire was built. This was also the time that overlapped with Stas, Marichka, Maxim and I going to school and establishing ourselves as individuals through what we learned, heard and saw. In different parts of the country, in different contexts and in different ways. So how did these two processes overlap? The push of our freedom and the pull of the colonial empire. I grew up in the times of duality in culture, in society, in identity. Before independence, everything was Russia-dominated. But late 90s and early 2000s were the first time in a century when Ukrainian culture finally got some freedom and institutional support. Take language, for instance. I came from a family that fully identified as Ukrainians. We supported everything Ukrainian and opposed everything Russian or pro-Russian. But we kept speaking Russian at home. I went to a Ukrainian school with all the classes in Ukrainian, but most kids spoke Russian outside of classes, even if they spoke Ukrainian at home. I read books mostly in Russian, I watched news in Ukrainian, and the TV was both in Ukrainian and in Russian. It may feel surprising that our heads never heard from this duality of context, but it never felt complicated to me. It all came very naturally and never triggered any questions about my identity. When we talk about Ukraine in its past and present, it's important to acknowledge the diversity of experiences that we all had. We all experienced that time differently, as we all came from such different backgrounds. So Maxim tells us his story to shed light on a different starting point for our common process of decolonization. I'm the one who was bullied at school. One might instantly assume because of my queerness, there was that at times, but in most cases it was the language. We were very poor and to protect me from malnourishment, my parents would send me to our ancestral village to my Ukrainian-speaking grandparents, sometimes for months. After coming back to the predominantly Russian-speaking city, I would sound in the words of my bullies like a dirty peasant or imbecile, all because of my thickened Ukrainian accent. So why would Ukrainian kids in independent Ukraine bully someone for speaking Ukrainian? We had three schools in our neighborhood. Two had a curriculum in the Russian language and just one had it in Ukrainian. The latter school would get fewer students, less money and not the best teaching stuff. Our teachers would stimulate better grades by scaring us with a transfer to the Ukrainian school. 
It was treated as a ghetto where only the bottom of societal battle ended up. Russian language education would be presented to us as the only tether connecting us to civilization. I internalized that colonial self-hate. With the rest, I was also an arrogant dick to the teacher of Ukrainian language and literature in our school. Nobody would take her lessons seriously, and the rest of the teaching staff pressured her into giving high grades to everyone, because you cannot fail a kid for such unserious and unimportant class as Ukrainian language. Whilst we'd love to tell you that independent Ukraine saw a cathartic explosion and acceptance of all things Ukraine, including its language, that simply wasn't the case. One of the reasons why decolonization is a process and not a single momentary event is because colonial empires not only seek to control you through military force and economic exploitation, but also through colonizing your mind through the imposition of colonial education systems and languages, through the systematic elevation of the colonial culture and the suppression of your own. By convincing you that you, your language, your culture, your customs are less than, the colonial empire no longer needs military power to control you. It simply controls you through your mind. And as soon as you start consciously trying to reverse that process, like so many of us did after Ukraine's renewed independence and still continue to do today, the empire freaks out just as it did after 2004. Ukrainian culture always had to prove it was on par with everything Russian and compete with obviously more prestigious and wealthier Russian industry in TV shows, music, books, in everything. I recently googled what was the first hit movie that got Ukrainian dubs nationwide. And it was actually the Cars cartoon from 2005. I remember many Russian-speaking Ukrainians at the time saying, you know what, the Ukrainian dubbing is actually much better. It's more alive, it's funnier, and it's just suited for us. It's hard to imagine how difficult it was for everything Ukrainian to battle against the institutional memory, the internalized sense of inferiority against Russian influence in politics and culture against Russian money and propaganda flooding our markets. I mean, I am actually very fascinated with the fact that we succeeded in preserving and developing our culture and language. I believe this is one of the biggest wins of independent Ukraine. Different backgrounds, different stories, different places. And yet, hearing all these memories from my friends makes me feel closer to them than ever before. There was something so fundamental that created a bond between us during those years of Ukraine trying to free itself of Russia's control that set us on a path to understand more about ourselves and our identity. We're finally at a moment in Ukrainian history when we can actually recount our own memories and not just what our parents and our family told us about those specific times. We're now in 2004, and it's been 13 years since Ukraine's renewed independence. And Ukraine is fighting again against authoritarianism and Russian control. So I wanted to start by asking you, what do you guys remember about the Ukrainian cultural boom before 2004 and through it? Basically, before Russia decided that Ukraine really threatened their empire. Uh, so, of course, I was a teenager there uh, then, and I lived in a heavily Russified region. And most of the people in the city would speak Russian. And, of course, if everything Russian would be considered of uh, higher civilizational value or, you know, carry this higher, better civilizational burden and 
whatnot. But I remember that right several years before the uh, Orange Revolution happened, there was um, the spread of this Ukrainianness among young people. So we started being, you know, speaking to each other in Ukrainian was considered something cool. And we would discuss uh, writers of uh, a so-called executed renaissance among each other as, uh, you know, rediscovering anything of Ukrainian uh, cultural value from the past. And then you can see uh, so many cool new Ukrainian artists emerging who would do pop music or any kind of music in Ukrainian, which was very new. You know, the, the whole movement of Territoria A, and the singers like Irina Bilik and, you know, cool bands like Okeanelisi and everyone else, they were all singing in Ukrainian. So I remember as a teenager, you would go in this heavily Russified city, you would go to concerts or festivals to see those Ukrainian artists and they would all sing in Ukrainian and then you would come back home and everybody still spoke Russian. So you had this massive kind of... Uh, a gap understanding that here's like the old generation of people or the old ways of communicating, speaking and consuming in Russian. Here are the new ways for new generation to embracing Ukrainian and uh, thinking and speaking in Ukrainian. Yeah. And how was it in Kiev, Stas Marichka? It was very intertwined. I think Russian and Ukrainian realities were existing together in many spheres of life. And as a kid at the time, I wouldn't necessarily even notice if something was in, in Russian or Ukrainian, you know, in Kyiv, I think still it's the case. Like you can talk to anyone in Russian and they can respond to you in Ukrainian and you're going to have a conversation without changing your language. And it was like that at the time, but there was definitely this feeling that everything Ukrainian, everything in Ukrainian was this like new wave. And I knew from my parents that even like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was almost nothing. So it felt like the tide was turning, I guess. But of course, like yeah. as a kid, you, you, you don't actually know it. You just kind of feel it and maybe have a hint from your parents or from conversations in the kitchen. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that I never question it like is it good that it was in ukrainian or in russian is it like ukrainian singers or bands or russian singers and bands because i remember a lot of ukrainian singers like irina bilik as maxim mentioned also it was sofia rataru that my my grandmother she loved her a lot and the, and she sang in ukrainian and in russian too and she was also very famous artists of Russia, and they gave her a lot of awards and everything else. But she sang in Ukrainian a lot. But there also was Annie Lorak, who, for example, began her career from Ukrainian language uh, songs. But right now she's in Russia, and she's very, I don't know. Tragic figure. Yeah, <laughs> tragic figure, because I think that actually a really interesting thing that her Ukrainian career, the whole Ukrainian albums and songs were much, much cooler and better than Russians one. I can say it like totally because I really loved it. And the same with Irina Bilik. But Irina Bilik is still <laughs> pro-Ukrainian and she's all right. But I mean, she was so cool and fashionable and stylish and trendy and everything. But 
again, as we speak in every episode, I have this feeling that I realize it only now, but I never, you know, thought about it really deeply 10 or 20 years ago. It was just, okay, now we have some Ukrainian speaking singers and songs and bands. Well, that's cool. I think we all identify as millennials, right? So of course, I think if, even if we don't, I think we we are. <laughs> I I uh, I think for every millennial, Harry Potter is in the books is something of sacral value. But may I remind you that I think around the same time, this was the first major franchise, the first major foreign book that was translated directly to Ukrainian, without as it used to be translated from Russian to Ukrainian. And Harry Potter books arrived to Ukraine earlier and was massive revolution for Ukrainian language because it was translated in a cool way without distorted Russian translation turned into Ukrainian translation and it was massive impact for Ukrainian publishing because before it was considered that you cannot have a successful book in Ukrainian and the Ukrainian language book is not a successful book. And I remember that was a kind of massive revolution for us, for kids, but also for the entire country to show that, yeah, a cool book in Ukrainian, even this Ukrainian translation could be popular, massive hit. And that happened around the same time. Similarly to this, I was a massive TV show fan and still am. And I just remembered that actually around that time and before that, Friends was like really big on Ukrainian TV and it was dubbed into Ukrainian and it was actually dubbed in such a way that the jokes weren't well some of them didn't really translate from English into Ukrainian but but the Ukrainian dubbing was done in such a way that it would also relay some of the kind of humor through Ukrainian jokes and things like that so it was actually quite genius and I just remember all my favorite TV show back then I watched in Ukrainian Buffy the Vampire Slayer I watched in Ukrainian Charmed I watched in Ukrainian and Friends and now just thinking back I remember what's actually what Stas just said about like when people started making such a big deal about what language the television was in because remember we a lot of people after 2004 after Orange Revolution when the Russia started like clamping down on all things Ukrainian people were like let's have more stuff in Russian let's have this and that and I just remember being like when I watched TV, I don't even remember what language it was in. We were so bilingual at that point that it almost felt like we had to put no extra effort into listening into what language it was. But you see, I think this is different for me because I've never been that bilingual. I was like raised Russian speaking and speaking Ukrainian wasn't really super easy to me, although the entire family surrounding me was speaking Ukrainian. And that was a breaking point for me because I've never imagined before that anything cool or interesting or something that speaks to me can be spoken in Ukrainian. And uh, that was massive deal for me for the first time to realize that this is not some almost gone or forgotten language that only like old dudes in some old books spoken has nothing to do with my life. But it was for the first time I realized, wow, I can express myself and express coolness about myself. Uh, in Ukrainian, it was a massive deal for me. And connect to the rest of the world, as you said, like through Ukrainian, by reading Harry Potter in Ukrainian, by watching Friends in Ukrainian. That was uh, for kids like myself, Russian-speaking kids. That was massive opening moment. And then obviously 2004 came and all of us maybe 
our parents more so, but all of a sudden we saw this crazy corrupt election, rigged election, Russian puppet come in and people rose up. And of course, popular culture and culture in general played a massive part in that as well. You know, there's so many, I would say, popular culture moments now that we remember from those days and we remember from the revolution itself. And we were just before the episode sending each other songs and stuff that we remembered from the times of the revolution. One of them even made it to Eurovision, but unfortunately didn't do well at all. I think it came last that year. It was um, it was very um, embarrassing. But at the same time, we still felt really proud about it. And of course, I think with the Orange Revolution, with the ability to push back on the corrupt election, Russia decided that, you know, that threatened the empire and did everything possible both before the election, during the election, after the election, especially after the election, um, and after the revolution to like reverse any sign of progress. And a lot of these singers and pop culture figures that we just mentioned reversed as well. And they went back into singing in Russian and went back into performing in Moscow. And I guess I wanted to ask you all as well to share with everyone who's listening to us some of your memories about those negative moments, reversal that Ukraine experienced, that artificial polarization that Russia tried to impose on us. And of course, we lived in different parts of Ukraine. So I think our experiences were probably different, but it will be super fascinating to hear what you guys thought and remembered. It was this kind of uh, feeling of polarization was new and old at the same time. So of course, this is, was the first time in my life when I felt like people surrounding me could be a threat to me just because I think differently or I dare to speak differently. But on the same time, I think Russia has been always investing lots of effort when it colonized Ukraine and kept it under occupation of maintaining this narrative that if you speak Ukrainian or you manifest your Ukrainianness, you're a Nazi or you're a crazy far right person and you should be hated and you should be ostracized within the society. And I think in at least in my uh, region where there's a lot of settler colonialism happened, a lot of Russians moved in, a lot of Ukrainians died during the Holodomor genocide in the 30s and were replaced by Russians. That was always kind of a popular myth that if you speak Ukrainian, the whole your existence is a threat to Russian domination. But of course, in 2003 and 2004, that kind of exploded. And now, you know, you see all these tankies online keep sharing those 2003, 2004 voting maps, probably, you know, I don't know why they're so fixated on something that happened 20 years ago, but as an argument that here's the real division that always been there. But in fact, it felt for me very much new because, you know, I remember that moment went as a young reporter to cover a pre-election rally in 2004. And I'm uh, at these pro-government uh, rally and there are thousands of people. And the stuff that is said in Russian from the stage was very vile, like really aggressive, basically dehumanizing the Ukrainian speakers, the idea of independent Ukraine. People were actively calling for reuniting with Russia and all this stuff. But at some point I realized that I'm standing a, the only young person in this crowd of very aggressive people and people starting looking back at me like what this young person is doing here. And automatically they would assume that I'm like the enemy, but because I don't look like an average voter for a pro-Russian party. 
And this is the first time when I got scared for my life that I'm going to be lynched inside this crowd. And it wasn't a very dramatic or crazy idea. The violence sometimes would happen to people who spoke in my region differently. And this was a breaking point for me that I started thinking that I don't recognize this country. And of course, years later, we saw all these uh, leaks saying that Russians hired Western political strategies to help pro-Russian regime in Ukraine, specifically like Paul Manafort and others designing this polarization tactics to divide people based on their language or along the lines of these Russian colonial imperial myths about Eastern Ukraine not being part of Ukraine, that Russia created it and so on and so on. So now we know how it happened. But then, back then, it was something shocking. I couldn't just get my head around why our neighbors would like suddenly hate on each other out of nothing after entire lives living side by side with no problems speaking various languages and having various identities. And you know, when you were saying that violence was actually quite real, you know, violence wasn't a new thing that happened in 2014. Russia has been doing a lot of sponsoring and supporting a lot of different violent moments, I guess, even before that. When I was reading up a little bit and refreshing my mind about Orange Revolution, I just remembered Yushinka was poisoned. Like, he was poisoned and almost died from the poisoning. And Russia was ready already back then to do quite heavily violent things to be able to keep control of Ukraine. And so, of course, remembering Orange Revolution is super inspiring and, you know, we feel proud about it. But it's also really important for us to remember those moments of Russia coming back and saying, this is not okay and you cannot decide who you want to rule your country because we want a puppet that we can easily control. I remember one weird thing that a lot of pro-Yanukovych supporters, even like people, kids in my class, for example, or their parents or friends of some of my parents, uh, <laughs> some friends of my parents uh, who also supported Yanukovych, one of message that they used and shared a lot is that connections with the US or Western connections or the problems with like Ukraine can go to NATO or European Union. And for me as a kid, it was always a question, what was so wrong with it? Why it was bad? Like, why sh we are not Russia? It was obvious for me. And I obviously never wanted to be a part of Russia. I never identified myself as Russian. So why it should be so problematic for us, for example, to learn English, to listen English or Western uh, singers or band or whatever. It's not only about Russia, everything. And in my family, for example, everything Soviet or Russian wasn't respected at all. Like my mom hated everything about it. And she always, you know, tried. Uh, it was this period when she wanted me to study abroad, for example, and go somewhere to Europe and live there for a better life. So I never understood why, for example, a lot of Ukrainians try to go to Moscow or to St. Petersburg for a better life. And also, I never understood what is so problematic. For example, Ukraine go to NATO. As a kid, it was like nobody explained it to me. But now I realize that it was a thing that was 
actively exploited by Russia for so many years. It's nothing new. It didn't came up firstly in 2013 and the same as it didn't came up firstly in 2022. So like <laughs> why and how? It was like really, really weird for me. I think it's a good point because this is where they hijacked our own internal conversations because suddenly the conversation started about like uh, this big powers, right? Russia versus West or NATO and not about what the people want, what the Ukrainians want and not that they, that by default they should be allowed to do whatever they want in terms of you know, with the kind of organizations they want to join or integrate somewhere. And 20 years later, we're still having the same conversation still. It's not about by principle that Ukrainians should decide on their own, but whether it's good or bad to be part of the West or Russia, which is misses the point completely. Yeah. And you know how we keep saying that like, Propaganda narratives are really not creative and that's how you can spot them because they repeat the same stuff over and over again. If you like go and check in comments, you know, you can just spot the narratives and the lines that Russian propaganda keeps repeating over and over again. And I think that's when they started raising as well this whole like CIA sponsored coup against, you know, whatever was happening against Russia. And there was so much money pumped before the election, I remember, into like political material on the television because television was the biggest way that people consumed news back then obviously not the internet and i remember there was so much stuff going on about how you know yushenko was propped up by the american regime by cia that he was just a puppet from them and things like that and so when we hear stuff like that in 2022 2023 2024 it's a bit insane because it's the same stuff that we've already heard and when people are like you know oh ukrainians you just don't understand the the situation you've been put into by big power players we're like no we've heard this before and we've heard the same lines repeated over and over and over again about what's happening in our own country and people again keep overlooking what we actually think and the context of our region so I just wanted to ask you guys a little short question. Did you know that Russians used this Nazi and nationalistic and Banderas idea in 2042 and later? I never thought about it before, but before our podcast, I read a few articles about the Orange Revolution specifically. And I just realized that they used absolutely the same messages about Nazis in Ukraine during the Orange Revolution, because like Yushchenko wasn't only associated with Americans and the all of these uh, superpowers regimes, but also he associated with like super pro-nationalistic, pro-Ukrainian, super even Nazi and fascist. And Russians used the same message as they used in 2013 and in 2022. And it's like absolutely the same. I think it's actually a proof that if you put a lot of money and you keep doing that for years and years to repeat the same lie over and over, you will succeed. Like you will have some success at some point. This is how propaganda works. So like, again, the only thing we can do is just to like deplatform every propaganda asset that we can like identify. When I was researching for the book and learning more about these stories of endless dozens of invasions, uh, Russian invasions to other uh, 
uh, neighboring countries and communities. That was actually striking similarity that uh, was very intimately understood to me about calling anyone Nazi. And basically, at the end of the day, Russians use this trick. When you reject the idea of Russian civilizational greatness, you're a Nazi. And when you try to assert your agency, you're a Nazi. And when you try to call yourself anything but Russian or anything that is, you know, on equal base with Russian, you're a Nazi. And they use this for generations. So, and they used it, of course, as you guys pointed rightly, in Ukraine many times for many generations, the same kind of argument, and they keep using it today. Because of this, I think there's also the revolution, the Orange Revolution in 2004, there was so much that we took on from the revolution in Georgia that happened in 2003. It was similarly a movement, a nonviolent revolution in Georgia that also tried to break free from Russian control. And so it wasn't just in Ukraine that we were trying to choose a different way. It was people in other countries as well. I think it was in a lot of senses, the Orange Revolution was this wake up call for many Ukrainians and from my family as well, because I think at that point, like in 2005, we started to talk openly, why are we Russian speakers? Like we knew that all of our like ancestors a couple of generations ago were Ukrainian speakers. So that that was the time when we started to actually consider Russian language as this like tool that Russia uses to hijack our country and influence our democracy and our like politics and everything. And I think it was also like, as you said, it was in a lot of ways a wake up call for people to see that Russia was not going to step back. Because as you said, Georgia's revolution was kind of like a, an inspiration to a lot of Ukrainians and people openly like talked about it at the time. And then when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, which was like three, just three years after the, the Orange Revolution, I think for a lot of people, this was again, the realization that this might be Ukraine as well in some future. And I think at that time, again, my father started to talk that, you know, we should consider the fact that Russia may do something similar to us. And I think that polarization was definitely like an artificially created, ramped up thing. But after 2004, people started to realize that we can't keep just, you know, be in this bilingual nation and be careless about some aspects of, you know, national security, preserving our culture, our language. And in a lot of ways, 2014 was the direct result of people taking some time to, to understand, like, what, what do we do next as a nation, as a state? What do we do next now that we see that Russia is such a threat? Yeah. And perhaps maybe to round us off a personal memory following 2004 of my own wake-up call that led to the choice of uh, classes in school that I had to make. So I think it was maybe a few years after the Orange Revolution, we were allowed to take on a second foreign language. And thank God, Russian was like listed as a foreign language, not as a native language. But on top of English and Ukrainian, they gave us the choice to study either Russian, French or German as a second language. And I remember having 
a massive fight with my parents about which language to choose. And it was actually, my dad was on my side and my mom wasn't. And I think my mom, I will explain why specifically she was the one who was trying to convince me to take Russian classes. But my dad was like, take French. You don't need Russian. You have Ukrainian, you have English, take French. Screw Russian, forget about Russian. You don't necessarily need to study it. But my mom, because she was bullied so much at school, she was in a Ukrainian speaking class and she still, I spoke to her about this recently and she just said she has a massive trauma because of the way that she was treated in school for being Ukrainian. And so she was like, no, you have to study Russian just so you at least know how to write it properly. And I guess that was still in her mind the right thing to do. But me and my dad won that fight and I have actually never in my entire life learned Russian in school which is why I can't write properly in Russian. I think that was my like act of resistance at the age of what, 13, 14, when I was like, nope, this is not happening. Not that I speak French today, but I also like to remember that time when I made that decision. It is clear that despite our diverse backgrounds, we find a shared bond in our experiences of a nation striving for freedom during this crucial period in Ukrainian history. But back then, we didn't know just how much our people would have to give up for our country. We knew that we were fighting against a foreign force that would do anything to keep controlling us. But how far would it go? Today, we know the painful answer to that question. And yet, we remember the time when we stood up for democracy together with pride. 